Welcome to Sastery in the Making, the podcast that features the people who made the software world what it is today and the leaders who are shaping the future of technology. Here's your host, Matt Wallach. Okay, I have some questions for you. Do you want to be in control of your cloud architectures? Or have you ever wondered how to make your application resilient? We are going to talk about those today. This is Sastry in the Making. I am your host, Matt Wallach, and I am thrilled to be joined by my guest, Tobias Kunze. Tobias, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing great. So Tobias, he is the CEO and co-founder of Glasnostic. Glasnostic is a really cool application. It puts operations teams in control of their complex cloud architecture so they can actively assure the digital experience. I'm really excited to learn more about what Tobias is doing at Glasnostic. It's really some cool stuff. He was also formerly the co-founder and CTO of Makara, which that was eventually acquired by Red Hat. So I'm sure he's got some stories there as well. But once again, Tobias, thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For sure. So tell me, what have you been up to lately and what's coming up? Yeah, so... Um... We are at the tail end of COVID and um, lots of movement in the marketplace. So what we are addressing is really this crazy explosion in application and service architecture that we're seeing that started with application platforms like we did with OpenShift at Red Hat. Right? Our, my previous company was a platform as a service where we started out hosting enterprise applications on something like a cloud platform, like a Heroku, but behind the firewall. Right? that eventually turned into OpenShift and then got um, airlifted on Kubernetes, if you will. So starting with that, we had this huge explosion of services and applications that increasingly now get connected. So not just microservice applications, but imagine many of these applications running in the enterprise and shared services happened, right? A lot of distributed, decentralized applications that are starting to talk to each other. And now what's different there in these kind of applications compared to what we're used to as technologists when we write things, uh, the architect things and design applications is that it becomes pretty unpredictable how these systems work in production and in real life. So that's what we focus on. We make these behaviors, application behaviors, visible and more importantly, you know, controllable in real time. That's fantastic. And that's stuff way above my technical knowledge for sure. But I know that there are a lot of applications kind of running around, especially in an enterprise company. I mean, when you look at a tech stack, it gets nuts. And for all of them to try and talk to each other and work well with each other, it gets to be yeah. very difficult. But what I want to understand is, and I saw this on your website, what does it mean for an application to be resilient? What is that? So yeah, it's a really good bridge to what we're doing, right? It's at the core, it's about you want to deploy things really quickly. You want to be, you know, deploying things fast. But once it's deployed, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Short of rolling back adjusting the capacity. But those are very crude means that you can apply. So what we do is we look at how application pieces and services and or other applications interact with other infrastructure and make this visible so you can fine-tune it in real time. So instead of just providing sheer capacity and hoping that that's going to keep everything stable, we apply real-time control. So if you kind of like compare us with air traffic, right? Then we're the air traffic control. You didn't need air traffic control in the back in the olden days when you had like 10 planes in the air at any given time and everybody would fly by sight, right? You could kind of like start the plane, you would know how it would end. 
But with hundreds and thousands of planes in the air, you need to be able to take control over all the unpredictability that happens. It's not just weather, it's other delays, right? It's things, emergencies happening. I mean, not life-threatening necessarily, but you're running out of fuel, other things happening, right? Slots opening up at an airport, these kind of things. The equivalent of that is your fate of your service that you just deployed now critically depends on another shared service or a database or some other customer that clobbers the same API. So these things become much more important than just the correctness of your code. And in technology, we have super focused always on, you know, how can I trace things and how can I get make sure that my code is correct? But what's really happening is that that is really difficult at a distributed systems level where we build 20, 50 components and these components actually need to work together in a very strongly coupled sense. Mm-hmm. But what's happening is that as developers, we create fewer and fewer pieces individually and then they get composed in runtime. Right. So I'm providing a new service that implements some functionality. And now anybody else in the enterprise can use that. Right. So it's a completely different type of architecture than what we're used to. And we call these service landscapes. It's a landscape of services, essentially, that everybody's running now. And once you run that, you deal with unpredictability in real time. Right. In production, things happen. Hiccups happen. Very difficult to track. Very difficult to uh, discover. So that's exactly what we do. High-level observability at the air traffic control level, if you will, right? And then applying controls to what's happening so you can shape how things work out. Okay. I love that air traffic control analogy. Well, I am an airplane buff myself, so it made a lot of sense to me. But I think that's really great that it's kind of controlling and making sure that everything's kind of okay and working together. You're right. Back in the day when it was, you know, 1920 and there were 10 airplanes in the air, it didn't really matter. But these days with the amount of traffic that's going on, the amount of different systems, I think that's fantastic. So what I want to know, Tobias, is who in particular should be thinking about solving this problem? Who exactly are the people at these companies that should look into this and say, wow, we need to, we need to figure this out? Yeah, super interesting question because there has been a confusion in the, in the industry over the past decade, right? Who is responsible for delivering services, right? Who is really doing the operations piece, right? And what it's important to realize that at a small scale, if you're a San Francisco startup with one application, right? One product, you have one application, you built this like you always did, right? And often there, developers do the service delivery. They deliver the application. They're responsible for keeping this thing, keeping the lights on. In larger organizations, when you have 500 applications, that are somehow weirdly connected over shared infrastructure, shared services, or directly even, right? These large enterprises have dedicated teams that are responsible to not just keeping the lights on, but improving how they keep the lights on. So we get a lot of interest from these uh, target audiences, right? Mm -hmm. Because they know we're running whatever it is, 200, 500, 2,000 um, services today, and it's going to be twice as many next year, right? Because the pace of innovation is accelerating quite quickly. So how did you come up with this idea? When were you like, wow, this is how we're going to solve this? It's come out of the experience of doing uh, OpenShift at Red Hat. Remember back then when we did platform as a service, it was really about how do we optimally support the building of applications, right? Just write your code, we're going to run it for you. That works great if you have a two-tier application, right? It's essentially a PHP or it's a Ruby or it's a Java talking to a database, right? Then quickly, what 
you know, what we realized is um, as we ran OpenShift publicly, that frankly, nobody writes these applications anymore, right? That may be a service now. Mm -hmm. And what happens is um, 20 other applications use that service. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense treating or thinking of this service as an application anymore, right? It's not standalone. It's a foundational service to something else, or it in itself talks to like 10 other pieces, right? So we get in these slightly in a decentralized application space. That's the key um, insight, really, that once you go beyond a single application blueprint, there are so many things that become unpredictable that you cannot design upfront, right? In the old world, when I was tasked with writing an application, I would think about how would I do this? How would I design it? What's the architecture of it? What kind of components do I need? I would create those or like pull from pull from elsewhere. I would stand them up. I would calibrate them until they work. I iterate on the functionality a couple of times and that's it. It's pretty predictable, right? Also in that kind of environment, what I really want to do is get a full runtime view of how transactions evolve, right? I want to trace, I want to debug in runtime, these kind of things. I even stand this up in a staging environment, right? Wow. Now, if I have even 10 of these things that are connected with each other, right? I have to absolutely decentralize, parallelize, if you will, the development as well. I need to, instead of having one large development team with a coordinated release every six months, right? I'm going to have continuous deployment many times a day. Yeah. So my entire balance of what's running in this connected infrastructure and in this connected architecture is changing every five minutes or maybe every 10 seconds. So there's very little architecture I can do. It, basically, if I write something today that's a service and it has an API, by definition, I can't do architecture because I don't know who's going to call me next week right, or tomorrow. So I need to rely on being able to scale out these kind of things. Of course, that only works in certain you know contexts, right? I can't scale infinitely, right? Things change uh, fundamentally as I scale, but at least to a certain extent, I can do that. But important there is that since I can't predict what's going to happen in runtime tomorrow, I need to have runtime control. And that's just a matter of scale. Below a certain amount of scale, correctness of my transactions and the correctness of code really matters. Kind of like it matters that you land your plane, right? That you fly it correctly and you reach your destination. It really matters. In the early days, right, when you had 10 planes in the air, right, because sometimes the engine would cut out, sometimes something else happened, you didn't know how to navigate, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. But that's really kind of like growing pains. Once you have thousands of planes in the air, the problem is that's table stakes, that these things at some point land and get to the destination is uh, table stakes. What you need to make sure is that the behavior, they all work together. So the outward behaviors of these planes matter, not the inner working of the engine anymore. Right. I like sure. to always say, you know, what's the old pressure on engine two that matters to the pilot? So yes, have your observability there, but the outward behavior matters. Like how many services hit this particular database, right? Can they do that? What does it cost? Right. It may cause a another instance to spin up. It may cause a sharding to rebalance, you know, whatever it is that affects everybody else who's a customer of that database. And that's mm -hmm. entirely unpredictable. I need to be able to do to adjust to demand as it happens. But sometimes I also need to be able to just push back. I need to be able to exert classic back pressure, right? Which almost nobody has today, right? We used to be able to do this in the Napster days, obviously, but today it's very difficult to do. So we bring all these operational patterns, these control primitives, if you will, back to the operations teams so they can actually take on workloads in mm -hmm. real time, as many as they want, because now they have runtime control. That's perfect. 
So what I want to know is, I mean, you got a great idea that you that you launched, and but how did you go about growing the business in the early days? What were some of the best things that you did along your path that really helped you guys get to where you are now? I think fundamentally being in Silicon Valley, I think what really helped in any startup would help any startup is building the technology team outside of Silicon Valley, right? It's very difficult as a startup to compete with Google and the kind of salaries they pay, yeah. right? <laughs> no um, kidding. But there's you know, a lot of hungry developers um, elsewhere. And as it happened to us, my co-founder was in Taiwan. Um, his previous company sent him there to build up, you know, an office over there. He wanted to do something new with me. And so we built out our R&D entirely in Taiwan. So in Taipei to be specific. So that's worked out extremely well for us. And hungry engineers, right? Great universities. Not everybody wants to work for Foxconn. So working for a software startup is um, definitely very appealing. So that was one thing we did that was really proved to be um, crucial for us, right? Another thing that was great for us is we got very large enterprise contracts early on. Okay, so you um, went after the big ones early. Yes, remember, we thrive off complexity, right? If you are mm -hmm. a 10-person San Francisco startup, you have one product, you have one application, you build this, like you always build applications. But that's not what happens in larger organizations when you have 100 different development teams, right? And different business units. and Everything's yeah. transforming digitally, right? Everything turns into digital processes. So there's a lot of movement going on. And clearly, these applications that these organizations develop rely on existing services. They don't build things from scratch. They build on top of existing um, architecture, right? So it becomes the Getty architecture very quickly. So to the point where, and of course, cloud helps, right? Because all of a sudden, I can stand these things up in no time, right? Think yeah. about it like today, even two years ago. Writing a service in something like even JavaScript at a reasonable maturity takes me half a day as much, you know, at most because it's 80% of the functionality is already there. So right. building that on top of existing infrastructure is super easy. I can run it for two bucks a day in whatever cloudy infrastructure or even like in our own on-premise environment. But mm -hmm. I'm talk now talking to 10 of my tier one services. So as an operator, I can't take this simply on. Right? I need to tell the team, guys, fine, great, you wrote this, but I need to test you first. And that means there's a whole queue of applications to be tested. So you're going to be deployed in a few months. Right? So that's a real problem in the enterprise, right? There's a massive operational crisis going on that is not being solved by throwing more traceability at problems, right? Tracing and threat of execution observability helps the developer, right? Because now I can throw stuff over the fence very, you know, much quicker than before because now I can see what's happening in production. I can actually fix it, right? But the problems that we are talking about are not logic problems anymore, right? It's environmental forces that uh, determine your success. So my code can be 100% correct and it gets deployed and my application doesn't work simply because I'm not getting through the right services at the right time. Mm -hmm. If you look back, every single outage in any company that publishes a, a post-modern. The story arc of these outages are always the same, right? It was something like, we did something we always did, but then circumstantial factors conspired and made it such that some weird limit got hit that nobody could ever conceivably think of. Sure. And then mayhem ensues, right? And then in very detailed, the mayhem is described in much detail, but it doesn't of matter course. what it is. 
if they had had the ability to just simply exert back pressure against whatever happened there, those outages that often last a whole day or longer can be converted into a mere degradation. So it's much better to run at 95% with a little back pressure against requests than being out for the day, right? And you can apply these things and discover these things from a very high level, very quickly. It's akin to telling everybody on that flight level, hey, there's a lot of fog on this airport. Please, everybody reroute over there. And nobody crashes on the fogged up airport. Yeah, no kidding. So I like the idea of, uh, you know, getting to enterprise customers. How did you approach them with no customers already under your belt? What exactly did you do to convince them that Glasnostic was the way to go? That's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) Are you going to build and then wait for them to come? Or do you work with a customer who, if you ask them, most of the time will tell you, oh, yeah, if we get a little bit of tracing, we're going to be able to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a different balance to strike. I'm sure it's different for every single product. But I think my advice to founders here would be that we are always underestimating our ability to create reality, right? Just showing up with a product that does already even 25% of what a potential customer thinks he wants, right? Mm -hmm. Gives you a really good shot at at least learning a great deal about this customer's problem. Even that, if that person doesn't become your customer in the end, you still, just by showing up and saying, there is a product that could help you, not 100%, but maybe a third of the way, you have a good shot at already getting in there. So we tend to forget that and lean startup method, uh, methodology of, you know, has tried to argue against that. But I think the problem we face in today's world, in the enterprise sales world in particular, is that there is too much software in the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's different from 10 years ago when everybody, as soon as they had an idea for a software, you could sell it. Today, nobody's going to even talk to you until you have something they can use. And then they're going to be looking at it. So you need to mix these. A lot of it is personal network. You know people in organizations. You interview them. You talk to them. You get early access to something. That doesn't work out, right? Because you're not ready to my prior point. So it's a mixture of these things. But I would say doing something is incredibly powerful. It doesn't absolve you from the risk that you may just build something and that they don't come. But you have to do something, right? You can't simply, for a new category, you know, creating a new category in a marketplace, you can't simply iterate with early design partners. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I like what you said about there's so much software out there. Uh, there's a concept I've been putting around. There's software fatigue. You know, everybody yeah. is so overwhelmed with how much software. We've already talked about the hundreds of different applications that enterprise companies are dealing with. Well, think about the buyers within those companies that you've got software people coming to you all day, every day, pitching their software product. And it just gets overwhelming. And you've got this email hitting, you've got this person on LinkedIn hitting you. And it's just really difficult as a buyer, which many of us, even in the software world, are buyers as well as sellers. As a buyer, it's hard to identify when should I actually open my ears and eyes and look at a solution that could be the answer? Because too many times we're like, oh, you've got a solution. They've got a solution. Somebody else has a solution. I'm going to put up my wall and make sure that I can continue about all the other things I have to do. So the software fatigue is real. How have you guys been able to differentiate and separate and get your buyers or potential buyers, your prospects to identify this is a solution that we really need to look out for and consider bringing in? How have you done that? Yeah. So I think. And particularly in the early days, a large factor is luck, right? You need to 
stumble across a, a champion who's been looking out for you already in some form, right? It's impossible mm-hmm. to convince anybody from, from ground zero, from the get-go. They need to be looking for you already. So it's a little bit of a game of talking to enough people to increase your chances of finding that and then mm-hmm. learning from these um, early conversions. And my senses, personal sense, that balance changes every quarter, right? And not just because you grow as a company, but also because people operate differently, right? If you think mm-hmm. about over the past year, we've seen the, the change from a meeting going from one hour to half an hour. Mm-hmm. Right? People schedule half an hour meetings by default now. And um, it used to be the full hour. Oh, can you do 2 p.m.? Can you do 3 p.m.? Now it's, can you do it, right? So the behavior, how how people and potential customers consume things change dramatically all the time. Mm. So that balance is something that needs to be observed very, very carefully. I don't have a recipe for that, obviously. I think nobody really has, right? Yeah, very true. I think balance is the key. And you have to understand how to balance the priorities within your own software company, what you're trying to do. And I think that that's, you know, therein lies the rub. That's exactly yeah. as a software founder and leader, that's what you're trying to do all the time. Sadly, speaking of time, we have run out of it. But uh, oh. I really appreciate all of this knowledge and wisdom, Tobias. I really appreciate that because it's helped me understand a little bit more. This is definitely a gap in my knowledge. And I appreciate you sharing everything for us. Absolutely. Happy to do Perfect. So how shall our audience learn more about you and Glasnostic? I think best way is um, visit the website. We also have a pretty extensive blog that's hosted there where we go into use cases, case studies, um, other things. Talk a lot about operations and how active control helps uh, complex infrastructures. Website is Glasnostic, G-L-A-S-N-O-S-T-I-C, or simply Glasnost, like in the old days, Glasnost and Perestroika, and Agnostic, so Glasnostic. Glasnostic.com is the best way. Okay, perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes so that everybody's on the podcast. You can all see that and get to that. So uh, this has been great. Tobias, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Great talking to you. Absolutely. And for everybody else, make sure you are subscribing. Hit that subscribe button. We are constantly talking with creators and innovators and learning about their story and how they built their SaaS companies. So thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to Sastery in the Making. Join us next episode for another look into how today's visionaries are creating the next generation of innovation.